Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy.
Good morning, beautiful people. I want to thank you for joining me here this morning. Nube Brown, your host of Prison Focus Radio here at KPOO San Francisco. We are going to be spending the rest of the hour hearing from and about Paul Redd, our friend, our comrade, our brother, our new African freedom fighter, lover of his people, who transitioned this 2022 Juneteenth Sunday. And um, we will miss you, but the ancestors I know are smiling on you as you have transitioned home and for doing what you were set on this earth to do, and that is to love and uplift your people. We will miss you, Paul Red. So stay with us this hour um, as we again pay tribute to Paul Red. This is Brother Bellico and Campbell Mohammed. I speak to you guys today on behalf of a friend, a comrade, a brother. The fearless lion was laid down to rest. Or the royal falcon of Horus has taken another righteous soul into the radiance of the heavens. A soul that now sits in the sacred circle of the ancestors. The passing of Conrad Paul Red is a great loss to us all as a nation and as new African people. As this brother brought light and greatness to the struggle matched only by those of us who continue to carry on the legacy of those who have gone before us. He lived his life as an example of his message of unity, consolidation, and group operation. A bona fide warrior and new African in service to the people. He struggled with strength, dignity, and determination for over 47 years behind the walls to continue the work left to him by those who came before him. And he encouraged, urged people of the noble African genotype to end all petty grudges, negative approaches, and the negative approaches to our problems. He taught honor and respect to so-called thugs and hood niggas. It showed them how to respect and give concern for each other in such a way whereby the world would come to respect and honor them. He also taught them to be young lions and soldiers for all seasons. I was one of those young soldiers that he taught. And I was one of those young warriors that have grown with the example that he gave me. I stand now as an eternal witness to the teachings that this brother imparted to me, the political education. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded.
Next is an excerpt of an interview I did with Paul Red and Kubwa Jitu about the 10th anniversary of the first of three historic California hunger strikes that ended with a third strike and 30,000 participants to end decades of solitary confinement torture meant to break them. All right, all throughout the month of July, we will be commemorating the 10th anniversary of the first hunger strikes or the what is considered the California the historic California hunger strikes that um, started with the first in July of 2011 and then culminated um, in a 30,000 participants with the largest hunger strike ever recorded in California um, in 2013. We will be hearing from the men who represent hundreds of others who have survived the torture of decades of solitary confinement and psychological abuse in California Department of Corrections and small-R rehabilitations prisons, but most notably Pelican Bay State Prison uh, solitary housing units. But no less important is these men are the best of the best. They are our loved ones. They are political prisoners. They are our heroes and brilliant, esteemed elders. We will be centering and uplifting their voices all month long in this ongoing struggle for their release. We cannot and we will not do this work without them. Uh, so this morning with me are Paul Red and Ruben G2 Williams. Both were integral in the first, second, and third historic hunger strikes, California hunger strikes, of which we are commemorating the 10th anniversary. 
uh, that started in July of 2011. Also out of those hunger strikes came the most important document and weapon against CDCR's abusive tactics of the last 50 years, the agreement and hostilities. I want to welcome these two men to the show. Paul Red, will you please introduce yourself? My name is Paul Red. Most people know me by PR, Aymara, uh, um, and, you know, spent most of my time in prison, you know, close 46 years, uh, 30-something in solitary confinement at Pelican Bay. Uh, I was one of the 16 supporters of the hunger strike, uh, then the hostility as well, you know. And uh, yeah. in in May of uh of twenty uh twenty one twenty tw- uh uh May yeah May twenty first uh I was finally released it, uh from prison from Backville Prison on the eleven seventy. And we welcome you home, PR. We are so glad you're here with us today. And Ruben G. Two Williams, please introduce yourself. Uh, my name is uh, Ruben Williams, and those who know me call me Coop Walkie Two. I too spent a total of 44 years in uh, prison, uh, with 36 of it total in shoe units. The last 26 years in Pelican Bay. Uh, uh, due to uh, the activities that took place in the hunger strikes uh, during the uh, middle of the 2000s, uh, I was one of the individuals who was first released to the general population. And about four years after that, I was released uh, to back to Babylon. So I'm here today in discussion with a good friend of mine, Newby. You know. All right. All right. Well, welcome home, friend. Uh, that people like Kubwa D2 and PR have spent decades in the torture of solitary confinement simply for their beliefs and political activities is something that we should not be allowing in any kind of civilized society. Uh, what we are going to share with us needs to be looked at as a continued move forward and getting on board in this struggle to end any kind of solitary confinement, to get our people home, and in my view, as an abolitionist, to abolish prisons altogether. Uh, With that said, we have the 10th anniversary of the historic California hunger strikes coming up, and I would love for the two of you to talk about what this means to you, but also dig back a bit during that time to share your thoughts on what was taking place back then, beginning July 1st, 2011. And um, who would like to go first? Me, Kubla, G2 here. Uh, My thoughts were on... Would we, would, would, would many of us survive that hunger strike because a lot of us had dedicated ourselves to the length of time that we were going to do? And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and look, looking at the history of, of hunger strikes, you know, it's, we began to realize how much time we had before the system shut down and we began to learn what we were up against and yet still we most of, not most, but quite a few of us were willing to take that. That challenge. So my thought going through my mind as we proceeded was uh, how far could I push myself to continue this struggle if they stood up and tried to fight back harder than we fought for? Mm. And for me, PR, uh, I knew uh, in order to do this hunger strike that we was putting our life on the line. And we was going to make a big sacrifice, but we knew if we'd done this, it'd have to have 
a serious impact on the system to where they would concede and give in to our five court demands. At the time of the hunger strike, I didn't even consider my health problems that I was having at that time. But I knew this was something that we had to do if we wanted to change the system that we knew that was torturous, barbaric, and everything else you can think of. You know, they took a lot of what we was doing as a joke. You know, we went from a yearly review to a six-year review. It was constantly being based on erroneous confidential information that kept us within the shoe part, you know? The hunger strike was organized, you know? Like G2 said, and I say, we had been in the shoe long before that, and we was being held in the shoe based on the fact that if we wanted to get out the shoe, we had to become a state agent and debrief. All of them was military terms that CDC officials then brought out of the military and tried to incorporate that in CDC environment. You know, it is like, you know, you snitch, die, or get out the hole. And that was the norm. You know, they didn't even have a policy, a debriefing policy, even though they lied and said they had one. But when they was challenged to produce the document, didn't know a document exists to substantiate their claim, you know? And even upon the time when the debriefing process actually came to light, people didn't really realize how many years they had been using that on us. And literally, and I think Paul Redd, he was one of the individuals that initially tried to get them to put that word on record. And any time they got to talking like that, they would shut off any recordings they had, and they would tell you, well, here's what you can do if you want to get out. So you had people being debriefed, I mean, years up until the day they made it legitimate to where they could actually say this term and have some legal foundation to stand on with it. But we have been facing that for, what, maybe a dozen years? If not longer. You know, because everything the CDC was doing was underground policies. So by the time it comes to light, they figure, here's where I think we kind of made a mistake sometimes. A lot of people, a lot of prisoners say what they can and cannot do. In other words, the CDC will do something and somebody will holler out, man, they can't do that, they can't do that. See, the thing is, they can do anything they want. What we have to concern ourselves is how long. This is what they contemplate. They figure that, okay, how long before these boys can get this to court? And how long can they get a decision on it? And how long can they get it overturned? Their lawyers might say four or five years. But four or five years worth of debriefing is extremely destructive. So they had that time. And they held the courts up as long as they could with some illegal activities that they later had to, out of their own mouths, had to admit to that they were wrong. You know, so, and that's what you had to face with. You're faced with a 
turned in the legal system. So that's what we were dealing with. And we kept, a lot of times we told ourselves, hey, they can't do this, they can't do that. All we were really asking them to do was adhere to the policies that you had already written in your Title 15 and your DOM. They weren't even adhering to the policies that were laid down by themselves. We were fighting to get them to just, hey, adhere to your own stuff. We couldn't get them to even do that. And that's why it was important. And they took a lot of this, what we was doing, as a joke. Because like, like G2 said, they were trying to see how far we would go. And as we shown that we were willing to go all the way to the end, they still took it as a joke. Because in the past, you had other little hunger strikes that didn't last. So they figured that this is not going to last. But once, uh, you know, CDC made the biggest mistake because they thought it was a joke. So, you know, they kept threatening us, well, we're going we're gonna to take y'all TVs from y'all. And a lot of them say, hey, come on, take it. You can get mine right now. Just unplug it. Yeah. You know? So they're like, why Why you want to unplug your TV? Uh-huh. Well, if I unplug my TV and I have nothing to look at, then I can think more about what I'm going to do about it against you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they said, well, that's what we thought. So the union went to Sacramento and said, no, leave these guys TVs in their sales. So the next thing they thought they was going to come up with this move, they're going to put us all in the short quarter. That was one of the brightest ideas I thought they ever came up with. Because if they put you all in the short quarter, now you're able to communicate better. So that's how we were successful and continue the hunk strike to where we end up doing that third when it got 30,000 prisoners to support us. You know, and then they wanted to say, well, uh, oh, you guys had attorneys that came in past your messages around about the hunk strike. Attorneys had no involvement in uh, us communicating about the hunk strike. Hell, you put us all in the short quarter where we can talk over the wall, talk through the tortoise, uh, talk through the door, over the chair. you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But now you want to blame the attorney. Blame yourself for it. All right. When you guys uh, first started this, as you're developing your communication strategies and ultimately getting 6,500 people to go on a hunger strike, how did you do that? Very simple. You relied on the facts. People got tired of continued being help in this shoe based on erroneous information, based on because you read certain books or had certain uh, political uh, newspapers, et cetera, in yourself, they was fine. People said enough was enough. So when they got to the point where we wasn't accepting that, people say, hey, man, I'm willing to do that hell strike. And that was across the board of all races. Mm-hmm. Because people start, you know, realizing that loved ones on the on the outside world was dying. Uh, those who had kids, their kids was growing up uh, where they could find it up here in Crescent City, in the boondocks, so to speak, that uh, they couldn't get visits. So uh, people decided, hey. We need to do this on strike, and we got a good, legit reason for doing it. If we want to sit up here, we 
we're going to die in here anyway, so let's die making a political stance. Because it seems like we weren't going to never get out of prison. Yes, most people don't find themselves in that place um, where they're willing to put their lives on the line. You guys have been in solitary confinement for decades by the time the first hunger strikes came around. Is that right? Of course. Right. But our politics was mature. So when we was able to talk because of the structure of Pelican Bay, uh, the sections, you don't have to talk in a large audience. There's only uh, eight cells per section. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to communicate with, you know, anywhere from eight to 12 people in your section over the tier. Even those who may have just came in the hole, only been there for a year, two years. But you'd be able to share your experience. And a lot of them was like shocked when they hear our stories but how long we've been in a hole. And when we explained and showed them what for, that even frustrated them because they realized, hey, I'm going to be like this too. So if there's a cause of action that needs to be taken, then let me get on this fight too. Mm-hmm. Uh, did either of you have an idea as to why you were brought to Pelican Bay State Prison, this Supermax prison? Yeah, did you understand why it was being built and why you were put there when you first got there? I'm sorry? No, I didn't hear you. Uh, say that again. Um, I, 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 knew what, I knew what was being said, and which wasn't uh, very much other than... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, they had built a new place that was similar to uh, something that was level five, and they were going to be holding uh, these most deadliest men in the state and blah, blah, blah. And other than that, uh, what I attributed to it all was the same basic things that attributed to the system to begin with. Uh, you, you continue to build uh, these prisons in these, in, in these areas where uh, uh, the job, uh, where, where, where it were, um, People who are are not financially that stable. It's a small community, and they always build them in these local areas. So just to sort of build up these neighborhoods and these communities, and these communities are all the same. You know, I'm not trying to make it a racial thing, but it's always these white neighborhoods and these uh, small communities way out somewhere, and they use these prisons. You understand me to enhance the the economic standards of this community, and uh, also. Uh, uh, they begin to move prisons for the, uh, for the sake of uh, destroying family lives and connections with uh, uh, support groups and, and things like that. Because as I said in Pelican Bay, I, I, I was dealing with things like uh, people who I was writing in Sweden and New Zealand and places like that are getting the envelopes, I mean manila envelopes with newspaper clippings in them about some prison gang stuff that was taking place in another state and trying to attribute it to us um, in California. And they were telling these individuals that you shouldn't be speaking to these people uh, or shouldn't be uh, 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 supporting them or contacting them. And a lot of these people actually left, but there were a few who said, I refuse to accept the words of somebody who refused to put their own names at the end of a letter. So uh, I was able to continue to communicate with some. 
but their, their intentions were, you know, were, were not blurry. I, I, I assume they were just as the intentions were when they shooed everybody up uh, in these prisons around the state and they began to, to build prisons who were uh, set up for this particular uh, type of prison setup. So, uh, yeah, for as far uh, as anything concrete, we, 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 we heard what they said they were doing, but we also knew historically what they were doing and how they were going about it. Mm. So, and, okay, go ahead. Let me add to that too, because it wasn't until uh, in the late uh, 90s that a private investigator named Tom Quinn, who worked for the attorney, uh, Catherine Campbell, he wrote a, a confidential document that was quite a few pages. During his investigation, he found out that there were secret, secret meetings with officials who was told that they had a certain amount of money, and they used the funds to contact uh, architects to come up with this design. They wanted a prison to be designed that would destroy uh, prisoners mentally, uh, physically, etc. They wanted to, what they said, they was going to lock up the worst of the worst. Pelican Bay was designed, well, it was designed to hold more than uh, the 1,200 that it was for, but they were saying that they was going to put 500 of the most dangerous prisoners in Pelican Bay. Well, uh, it turned out uh, it was more than 500, but it wasn't as dangerous because they was putting people up here who was in wheelchairs, who didn't have legs and arms, etc., as a, a scare tactic to scare them. Uh, they may have been uh, filing complaints in some of these other prisons. Uh, mm -hmm. But anyway, this whole report shared a whole light on why Pelican Bay was being designed uh, the politicians that was behind uh, getting the money approved, uh, how certain uh, architects and certain politi politicians benefit from uh, finding who was going to be able to uh, get the, the, the contract uh, for building this prison that's going to be far more, far worse than the one that was built in Arizona that was supposed to be used as a model. All right. It should be mentioned that this is where the people's tax dollars are going because this is on our dime, torturing people. Uh, so how soon in did you start making your complaints and trying to reach the outside? For instance, California Prison Focus was the Pelican Bay Prison Express at that time, and they started getting word from y'all inside fairly early. Can you go back to that time and talk a little bit about what you saw from the beginning and what you were doing about it? So the first day people started arriving in uh, Pelican Bay, the first prison, people immediately started uh, sending out complaints uh, to people. And Bato uh, and Curtis Weinstein was very supportive and instrumental in putting together some uh, people to help us uh, investigate and collect uh, our letters. That's how uh, Pelican Bay Express came to be. And from there, 
it turned into um, the prison focus. <laughs> but they was the ones who was very committed finding volunteers that would travel up there and pull us out our cells and gather our complaints and hear our information. And they would take that stuff back and put it on the drawing table. And they would get at various attorneys uh, to find out what they can do to help us uh, put this out there about this place. Because there was a lot of complaints about Pelican Bay. I mean, from from the the cell doors was faulty opening up because um, it was just the, uh, the electronics was faulty. Uh, certain doors was open up. Um, the walls had cracks in them. They leaked it. All kind of stuff. Uh, and you know, Pelican Bay was, like I said, was designed to inflict torture from day one, psychologically. Uh, when you used to hear about, uh, what's that, uh, the tsunamis, um, that down in Japan, they had a tsunami. Tsunami. Yeah. When they would have a tsunami warnings in Crescent City, the guards would come by with a big old metal plate and slide in our door and put a lock on it. Because if there was going to be a big old flood like they had in 1965 in Crescent City, they was hoping that it would kill us all in these cells. So they would save themselves. And even though it didn't happen, just the psychological uh, mind uh, set is having somebody putting a double lock on your door and they running out the building. That plays, you know, that plays a lot. That lets people know. Many people don't care nothing about us being alive. They're going to kill us too. You know, so this is like mass uh, genocide right here. If mm. we go down. Uh, huh? Well, uh, considering that, and then I wanted to go back to, uh, you know, building this thing to bring, the building this supermax prison, this level five prison for, um, uh, for apparently the worst of the worst. But now here you are talking about uh, what they would do uh, when uh, there was some tsunami warning um, up there in Crescent City. Does that have any kind of reminiscence of what the reminiscence of what you two are seeing now with COVID nineteen and how they're and how they're handling it in the prison? Well, I mean, this COVID nineteen took it to a whole another level. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because you know it killed millions of people across the country, the United States, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And but when it came to the prison. I mean, it goes all the way back to the Hong Kong flu and all these other uh, uh, diseases that came out that hit prisoners hard. Uh, you know, you got to keep in mind the medical, um, uh, the medical uh, quality of care inside the prisons have always been sh shabby. So, you know, it was all about, it's all about money. So when it came to that COVID-19 started spreading in prison before it even spread it, even the guards was complaining, man, why are they not checking us? Why are they not uh, doing this temperature check? 
Oh, why are they doing this temperature check when they're not following up on all this here? You know, so you had a lot of guards that was complaining about it. But CDC didn't care about what they were saying. You know, even the union was trying to get them to do things. And if they didn't care nothing about their own, they really didn't care nothing about uh, prison because of, uh, prison because of what, it was impossible to even have that uh, six feet social distance inside a prison. The way these prisons are built, these day rooms are built, all that. Mm-hmm. So when you go back and look at the way this, these prisons was built, the way these new ones are being built, it was all about genocide. Just that's the bottom line: genocide. You know, mass murder. Let's keep it real: mass murder. Uh, thank and you. Don't, and don't make no mistake: the fight is not over because we still got friends and loved ones in these prisons that we got to get out. All right. If you are just joining us, this is Prison Focus Radio. I am your host, Nube Brown. This is a project of California Prison Focus. I have been in conversation with having an interview with Paul Red and Kubwa G2 Williams. They are two men, two incredible elders representing the hundreds of men of the historic California hunger strikes of which we are celebrating, commemorating the 10th anniversary of the first strike of July in 2011. We are going to take a quick musical break and come back with that interview. Paul, I want to thank you for using the term genocide. I don't know if thank you is the right term, but I agree that that's the correct term for what's taking place. Uh, I wanted to ask you, do you also consider the building of this prison, picking and choosing who's going to go inside and calling all the worst of the worst to be like another form of COINTELPRO? Well, let me say this. One of my comrades said, you know, he said, he said, brother, they call us the worst of the worst, but you know, in reality, we are the best of the best mm-hmm. because we didn't allow ourselves to be broken. Uh, and here we is now out here in Babylon 
not behind the walls, but yet for years we was called the worst of the worst. But yet now we walk out here uh, in the free world to continue to do uh, the positive work that we're doing to bring others home. So uh, we weren't the worst of the worst. We was the best of the best. And we showed we was the best of the best because we survived it what they was trying to inflict on us, the worst conditions as possible. And in some cases, they were successful. But at the end of the day, those of us who were strong are still standing, and those who are still behind the walls are still standing, fighting to the end. I would love to name some of those men, those heroes, those political prisoners, those survivors who are still standing. Can we name some of them? Well, we can name them all who are still uh, being held in Tracy, in Fosa, in uh, Soledad, in uh, uh, uh New Fosa, my old Fosa. You know, we all know who they are, you know. Uh, so, I mean, we can name them all and still not be done. The thing is, are we willing and prepared to get them up out of there? Because once we get them all up out of there, then we can put their names on this list. The mm -hmm. survivors of this, the hellhole that they've been flicked upon them. Uh, sticking with the best of the best, would either of you like to talk about the incredible food distribution that you all did for the community a few weeks ago? Uh, do you want to talk about and lift up that beautiful coming together from one of the brothers, Richard Johnson, who came home just recently? Uh, you know, that was, a, that was a beautiful thing for me because it made me uh, kind of realize, not, not um, no, you know, realize is the wrong way. It kind of made me kind of, kind of, uh, kind of, uh, kind of float around in my mind of how it must have been those, you know, those years of, upon years ago during the Mishiraka Society when our people were sharing food in that same manner. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and, and you know, like, and we know that those type of societies have been long past, but you can, when, you, when I stood out there, I looked up and down that road. I looked up, I thought about people coming together to meet the people on every level of life that we knew reality to be. And that was what we all got a chance to eat. Nobody was left behind. There was food for everybody. And uh, it kind of made me kind of think back to how it probably was before it became watered down and tampered with and faced with destruction, you know. Wow, um, it's almost like this is the ultimate form of not being broken by being able to tap into your roots, being able to dig deep, to reach far and come from your roots as African peoples, new African peoples, and do work that is natural to your cultural and ancestral roots. After spending too many torturous years buried in a nine by six concrete box, isolated away from your people. You know, with me, just uh, food organizing, that we did June 5th. It reminded me of the teachers that we had when we, you look at this, this hunger strike, 30,000 prisoners coming together to support that cause. 
Now you're looking at some of these individuals on the street of different races, different groups coming together to put this food drive together to feed the homeless, those who are in need of it during this COVID-19. And some of the people who was instrumental with passing out the food, some of them were some of the people who came out of the prison. So again, you got not the worst of the worst, but the best of the best, because we was able to come out here and align with other uh, people that was out here and people, uh, man, it, it, it was the biggest hunger, I mean, the biggest food uh, give out I'd ever seen and most of I ever seen was on the TV during a news uh, uh, broadcast. But to actually be a part of that and be a part of in West Oakland where, you know, you was uh, raised at, uh, the farming park that was named after Bobby Hutton, you know, uh, mm -hmm. again, that was symbolic. Uh, and I, my hat goes off to Razor Johnson and all the other people that was supported and was behind this. And the list, you know, went on, you know, and it was just, uh, man, I mean, I'm still talking about it. And, uh, you know, trying to figure out when we're going to do this next one and when we're going to make it bigger than this one. All right. That's just so beautiful. Uh, but I am going to pull us back around um, into the hunger strikes again. And I'd love for us to talk about the five core demands. You know, you all were not really asking for anything outrageous. Uh, I, I, just want, I just want to put it like this because we're dealing with a, the 10th uh, anniversary of the August yeah. strike. So again, um, we were successful in pushing CDC to change some of their policies, mm -hmm. uh, confining us uh, in these shoes for decades and decades. Um, so, you know, the, one of the main things that, you know, that gave this a life to it is that we was not going to accept, continue to be punished, which is called group punishment. Mm -hmm. You know, we said, hey, if you're going to punish us, punish us individuals for something we've done, not as a group, because we know that you sitting up here abusing it, you're acting arbitrary with your power to inflict, and that includes the parole board. You know, yeah. so again, you know, to sit up here and start uh, re-talking about the five core demands, uh, we were successful in exposing the fraud that CDC was doing. Now, you know, here 10 years uh, later, we still have loved ones that we have been on yards with uh, of all races. And they are still behind those walls, even though most of them have been released to the general population. They still been uh, retaliated against because they participated in this hunger strike that didn't violate no CDC rules. You know, how are you going to tell a grown man 
that he got to accept your food tray you bring to his door. Yeah, you gonna write you gonna write him up because he refused to eat your state food. Yes. And even the courts agreed to one uh, case. Gomez, the courts them help that this prisoner who participated in hunger strike, this hunger strike did not was not gang did not uh, was not no gang activity did not cause no threat to the institution of security. So the courts ordered his 115 expunged. But yet all the rest of us who got riders for that, you didn't, you didn't want to go back and uh, remove our 115s, even though you knew that we violated no rules. And apparently that's how they've been operating ever since. I mean, before, this is how they've been operating for, for decades. Like you said, uh, either one or both of you uh, said that they, that they act in arbitrary ways. They, they don't really have to follow. You had to demand that they follow their own protocols and, and regulations at, because they weren't following them. Right, absolutely not. It, 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 it was just do what they wanted to do. And we decided enough was enough. And we was able to talk to other people that lived around us who concurred with that. You know, and, and they seen them own, their own self uh, being afflicted upon this. And that united us together. You know, like George says, several of your quarrels come together. So we always knew that the power of unity uh, speaks loud. And we shown it uh, with the 30,000 that participated. And we shown it uh, that made CDC take heed because we had people around the, U the country and other countries that supported us and joined the hunger strike as well. And they put that spotlight on the United States as well as CDC. All right. Um, I'd love for you guys to have you guys talk about the agreement to end hostilities. I think it really is the most important document that was created in the last 50 years. This document seems to speak so powerfully to what we need to do in terms of our own social, political education, organizing, and activism um, in solidarity all of which you both spoke so eloquently about. Paul, your name is on that document, but I know that others were supporters and put in the energy whose names are not on that document. I would love for both of you to just share something about the agreement to end hostilities. Okay, we'll, I'll let Paul do that since he's part of the process that's set in motion. I, I'm just going to put it in, in, a, in, a, in a nutshell. Um, us behind the walls, was putting together this hunger strike, we realized that CDC uh, officials, IGI, prison guards, was going to try to sabotage this hunger strike. We knew they were going to play games, divide and conquer, uh, create certain little things to have people not support the hunger strike. So we knew we 
had to put this document together to educate people. Let us stop bickering, uh, fighting amongst ourselves. Whatever dispute we have, let us come together as men and discuss it and resolve it. Because this hunger strike was bigger than all of us. This hunger strike was to bring an end to this injustice that's being inflicted upon us. So we knew we had to get this word out, this document out to the YAs, the county jails, and every place that we can get it to so people can see and realize, let us now come together. This is the time to make the changes. And that was one of the most important things that we were able to do. And it, it worked because um, after I gotten out of the shoe, I ran across a lot of individuals, different races, et cetera, commending us for coming together with that end of hostility because it helped to stop a lot of the, uh, the internal fighting as well as uh, the little fighting amongst other races. And once that happened, uh, prison officials realized they lost their grip. It was a new day. The agreement to end hostilities, August 12, 2012. To whom it may concern, and all California prisoners, greetings from the entire PBSP SHU Short Corridor Hunger Strike representatives. We are hereby presenting this mutual agreement on behalf of all racial groups here in the PBSP SHU Short Corridor, wherein we have arrived at a mutual agreement concerning the following points. One, if we really want to bring about substantive meaningful changes to the CDCR system in a manner beneficial to all solid individuals who have never been broken by CDCR's torture tactics intended to coerce one to become a state informant via debriefing, that now is the time for us to collectively seize this moment in time and put an end to more than 20 to 30 years of hostilities between our racial groups. Two, therefore, beginning on October 10th, 2012, all hostilities between our racial groups in SHU, ADSEG, general population, and county jails will officially cease. This means that from this date on, all racial group hostilities need to be at an end. And if personal issues arise between individuals, people need to do all they can to exhaust all diplomatic means to settle such disputes. Do not let do not allow personal individual issues to escalate into racial group issues. Three. We also want to warn those in the general population that IGI will continue to plant undercover, sensitive needs yard, SNY debriefer inmates amongst the solid GP prisoners with orders from IGI to be informers, snitches, rats, and obstructionists in order to attempt to disrupt and undermine our collective group's mutual understanding on issues intended for our mutual causes, i.e. forcing CDCR to open up all GP mainlines and return to a rehabilitative-type system of meaningful programs, privileges, including life for conjugal visits, etc., via peaceful protest activity, non-cooperation, especially hunger strikes, no labor, etc., etc., People need to be aware and vigilant to such tactics and refuse to allow such IGI inmate snitches to create chaos and reignite hostilities amongst our racial groups. 
we can no longer play into IGI, ISU, OCS, and SSU's old manipulative divide-and-conquer tactics. In conclusion, we must all hold strong to our mutual agreement from this point on and focus our time, attention, and energy on mutual causes beneficial to all of us, i.e. prisoners, and our best interests. We can no longer allow CDCR to use us against each other for their benefit because the reality is that collectively we are an empowered, mighty force that can positively change this entire corrupt system into a system that actually benefits prisoners and thereby the public as a whole. And we simply cannot allow CDCR, the CCPOA, the Prison Guards Union, IGI, ISU, OCS, and SSU to continue to get away with their constant form of progressive oppression and warehousing of tens of thousands of prisoners including the 14,000-plus prisoners held in solitary confinement torture chambers, i.e. the SHU ADSEC units, for decades. We send our love and respects to all those of like mind and heart, onward in struggle and solidarity. Presented by the PBSP SHU Short Corridor Collective, Todd Ashker, Arturo Castellanos, Sitawa Nantambu Jama'a, Antonio Guillen, and the representative's body, Danny Troxel. George Franco, Ronnie Yandel, Paul Red, who is now transitioned, James Baridi Williamson, Alfred Sandoval, Louis Powell, Alex Yergoyen, Gabriel Huerta, Frank Clement, Raymond Chavo Perez, who died in prison, and James Mario Perez. PR, we love you and we will miss you. And we will continue to work here, out here in solidarity to do what you and the other brothers that have been able to come home uh, to help secure the freedom of the other brothers who are still inside. The agreement to end hostilities is our roadmap to liberation and it is our greatest document for the social transformation and what it means to work in unity uh, to get it done. So that is our show for the week, and I encourage you all to visit www.prisons.org. Uh, Prison Focus Radio is a project of California Prison Focus. Uh, please check out their website, as well as the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper at www.sfbayview.com. The struggle continues, and we can only do it in shared humanity. Ubuntu. Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer.